Welcome to We Are Unstoppable, sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. I'm your host, Les Shapiro. And I'm your co-host, Vic Lombardi. Now, each episode, we'll bring inspiring interviews with great athletes, celebrities, and the most brilliant minds in medicine on how to beat adversity to win in life. So thanks for spending time with us as we bring you one step closer to becoming your best unstoppable self. A lot of people have asked why Vic Lombardi and I have chosen to host this podcast. It's real simple. Vic had prostate cancer and I have lung cancer. The theme of fighting through adversity and being unstoppable hits very close to home for us. So as part of the series, Vic and I decided to talk to each other about it, followed by a conversation with our doctors at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. All right, Vic, you're, you're 50 years old. You got prostate cancer. How did you know you had the cancer? What were the symptoms? How did you find out? Well, uh, like most people, a bit crazy, the circumstances behind it, Les. Uh, I'll never forget, it was December of 2018, and my usual doctor, my uh, family med, he, he had retired. He, he'd been gone, and the way we did our physicals for years was, hey, uh, how you feel? Good. You look good. Okay, see you next time. That's how it went. That's how it went for years, and you know, you figure, okay, I'm healthy. Well, he was gone. And all of a sudden, I get a substitute doctor in place, and she says to me, I, I don't know you. You're not yet 50, and we don't do um, full PSA tests until the age of 50, but you're close enough. Since I don't know you, why don't we go ahead and do this PSA with your blood test? Now, Les, I didn't know what a PSA was. What's a PSA for those of us in Public service announcement is for guys like you and yeah. me in the media business. Yeah. I, I'm not joking. This is like a threes company uh, comic routine. I, I thought she wanted me to read something for the for the <laughs> clinic. I'm like, well, you want me to do a PSA? What? Anyway, so I, I said, fine. Yeah, whatever. Do the blood test. Okay. Um, so I do the blood test. Everything felt fine. And about a week later, uh, I get a call from the doctor and uh, the doctor says, she says, hey, we have some weird numbers that came up. Uh, I'm going to assign you a urologist that I want you to see. And I'm thinking, a urologist? Why? Whatever. Okay. Yeah, I'm yeah. being okay. Yeah, exactly. What do I need that for? So I go, okay, I'll go see a urologist. And uh, I, I set it up. I schedule it. And as you know, schedules go with medicine, it takes a little while. And a month later, I'm in to see the urologist. And for precautionary reasons, they see the PSA. They said, we're going to do a digital exam. I'd never, ever in my life gotten a digital prostate exam before because I wasn't yet 50 years of age. They did it. And the words from the doctor at that point were, oh, you feel fine. You're good. Not, nothing wrong here. But let's go ahead and conduct another PSA just in case. So they conducted another blood test. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, Les, that whatever that first result was, was just a lab error of some sort. I'm good. And um, I took off. I, I actually went uh, at that point to Dallas on a work assignment. I came back a week later, and I'll never forget it. It was early February. I was about to go to the Nuggets-Houston Rockets game. I was getting dressed, and I get a phone call from that urologist. And the urologist says to me, hey, we need to get you in here as soon as possible. Wow. And, yeah, and I said, uh, what's going on? you've got prostate cancer and, and the words he used, I'll never forget it. It's a pretty bad one. Wow. Were, now, were you feeling symptoms? None, zero symptoms at all. I felt, so you felt perfectly normal, you know, fatigue, none of that okay. stuff that comes with it. I had no issues uh, urinating. I had no issues with any, no, no issues at all. Put it that way. But um, apparently, you know, as luck would have it, I had something brewing inside me and they caught it. 
He said, come in. So I had to wait through the weekend thinking to myself, and you know how it is, unless when you get hit with that diagnosis that you have the C word, what's the first thing you do and they tell you not to do? You go straight to the internet, right? Yeah, bad move. A horrible move. But you can't help yourself either. You know, you're sitting there idly by for two days. All I'm doing is thinking, what is it? What's in my what's in my gut here? I didn't even know what a prostate was last. You know, you're, you're probably more learned than I am. But if somebody had asked me before this diagnosis, Vic, can you identify the prostate? I swear to God, I would have no clue where a prostate was located. None. Not even the general area? None. Zero. No idea where the prostate was located. I thought it was a ligament on the knee of some sort. I had no idea. <laughs> so here I am, and uh, he says, I want you to come into the office on Monday. I go in. My wife and I both meet with him. Long story short, I left that office knowing that I had one of the most aggressive forms of prostate cancer you can get. And that I really didn't have many options. The, the, you know, the options are always on the table. Uh, radiation, uh, sit and wait. Uh, you know, they, they, call it, they call it a lot of Chemo. different things. Yeah, but my, my option was one and only, and it was get that sucker out of there. And I wanted to get it out of there. So at that point, Les, I said, you know, I'm going to use whatever resources I have and whatever connections I have. And that's when I turned to the University of Colorado. And I, and I turned to the Anschutz campus, and I said, you know, we had some people there that knew other doctors and I wanted the best. And I wanted the folks who had done this surgery as many times as possible. So I got in touch with a, uh, uh, David Crawford who had left there and he got me in touch with the Dr. Paul Maroney, who eventually did my surgery for me. And we did it pretty quickly. We did it, uh, three and a half weeks after my biopsy, which is incredibly fast. I did not want to wait. I did not want this thing in my body. I wanted it out. Get it out of me. Exactly yeah. right. That's how it went down. And I leaned on people like you because I knew you had gone through cancer and I know what you experienced. So let me ask you, where were you? How did you find out? Um, I had a number of symptoms that were giving me signals, but I was kind of ignoring them. And I had a family physician who wasn't able to recognize them. I started getting a numbness in my right jaw. How old were you? Two years ago. So 62. I started feeling numbness in my right earlobe and it went down my jawline uh, and, and stopped at about mid chin. And I went to my family physician after a while. Um, and he said, oh, you probably just have a trapped nerve. If it continues, we can either do some surgery or it'll just go away by itself. I said, fine, no big deal. Then I started feeling faint. And I was actually hiking in Arizona on a mountain, on an incline. Mm -hmm. And I had to stop like every 20 or 30 steps. Uh, very unlike me. I like to charge through it. I, I even ran the inclines. I couldn't run. I could hardly walk. And I, and I was feeling faint. And I sat down and I fell over at the top of this mountain. I didn't fall off the mountain. I fell over at the summit. Hmm. And I must have been out for, oh, I don't know, a minute or two. And when I woke up, I saw a number of other hikers leaning over me. Uh, couldn't figure out what it was. For 45 minutes, I couldn't stand up. Uh, they were feeding me protein bars. By the way, I will never eat another protein bar again. Uh, Gatorade, water. Many, many people were walking by and asking, is everything okay? Is everything okay? And they were all on their phones. I didn't know why they were all on their phones. It, it hit me as funny. Well, I found out. 45 minutes later, I was able to get my legs under me and I was able to descend the mountain. And at the bottom were two ambulances and an EMT truck. And they brought me in there. All those people were calling uh, 911. They were all calling 911 on my behalf. 
And uh, they took me into one of the ambulances and they gave me water and they checked my pulse and everything seemed fine. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I just was dehydrated. Maybe mm -hmm. I, I hadn't eaten enough before I went on the hike because it was a, a lengthy hike and a fairly rigorous hike. Um, and then I went back home to, uh, to Denver and I started fainting in the grocery store and I fainted in the local shopping mall. How often would this happen? Uh, this happened about three or four times altogether. And I decided to go see my ENT because I was also starting to cough and I was also starting to lose my voice. And you know, you're a broadcaster. Yeah. I'm a broadcaster. When that starts happening and, and your vocation is in jeopardy, you're saying to yourself, okay, I got to figure this shit out. All yes. right. Yeah. Uh, my ENT looks in my throat and he says, you've got a paralyzed vocal cord. I said, well, why, why would that, what would cause that? He said, I don't know, but let's get somebody to take a look at you. So I went into a radiologist. They did the ultrasound on my neck. They found cancer. In your neck? I, I'm, I'm, I'm laying on the table, and he says, this is cancer. And I turned to my wife, who was standing over us, and I said, did he just say what I think he said? Yeah. Well, once you have cancer in one part of your body, they want to check the rest of your body out. Sure. And they found it in my lung as well. But now they couldn't figure out where it was emanating from. Was it emanating from my neck? Was it emanating from my lung? Was it emanating from a salivary gland? Like you, I went to the internet. I did so much research on salivary gland cancer, and it turned out it wasn't that. So I just stopped with the internet after that. Um, it took about a month, month and a half for them to figure out it was emanating from my lung. It was that difficult for them to figure out. Uh, the initial hospital I went to, very, very good hospital located in Houston, Texas, they couldn't figure it out. Once they sent the biopsies, off to a genetics lab. The genetics lab figured it out. They said it was emanating from my lung. And I was very fortunate in this regard. Just a couple of months before I was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, a particular drug had come out called Tegriso that was specifically for my mutation. And it has been a game changer. They told me it would be a game changer. And it has been because I was, when I was down in Houston at that first medical facility, I was dying. I could feel it every day. I had no energy. I couldn't stop coughing. I had lost 12, 13 pounds like that. And um, uh, this was a game changer. And now I'm, I'm living a fairly normal life and going to Anschutz and, uh, and getting taken care of. And they do a wonderful job for me. You know, it's, it's amazing how sometimes cancer is faceless. Like my version of it, you'd never know. You, you saw me, you'd never know I had cancer. I didn't know I had cancer. When I knew you were sick is when your voice went, because I would talk to you periodically and yeah. your voice was half of what it is now. That was scary. You know, listen, I, I grew up with you and, and that voice, as soon as I heard it change, it scared the hell out of me because I knew something was going on. And the one thing that really made me mad is when you told me you had lung cancer and you never smoked a day in your life and, and that kind of stuff just... This is why cancer's it's so damn unfair, right? Well, you, know, you go you go into the doctor's office, you go into the radiologist, the oncologist, the pulmonologist, and when you fill out those sheets, when you're a first time visitor to the office, yeah, the first three questions are: Do you drink? Do you smoke? Do you do drugs? I didn't do any of them. Yeah. Yet here I am with stage four lung cancer. Who'd have figured? You mentioned yourself. If you didn't have that drug come about, that's yeah, a I'd be dead. They told me, and I get very emotional when I talk about this. Before we knew exactly what I had, what the mutation was, and how to treat it, because you can't treat it until you know what it is. They told me I had a 1% to 4% chance to live to Christmas of 2018. That was only six or seven months away from when I was diagnosed. So wait a minute. They told you this after they found the lung cancer emanation or when they just found cancer in your system? 
just when they found the type of cancer I had. We didn't know what the mutation was, but they felt because it was stage four yeah. and because they didn't know how to treat it yet, mm-hmm. I had about six or seven months to live. And then when did that prospect change? After we sent off my biopsies to this genetics lab and they figured out exactly what the mutation was, exactly how to treat it, and exactly what therapy was on the market to treat it with. So you had to live with that notion for quite some time. Yes. That, that's, that's a nightmare. Hey, there was a lot of crying, man. There was a lot of crying. My wife and I, we went to our CPA. Yeah. We went to our estate planner. Um, I was getting ready to die. Yeah. You know, and that's the bad part of cancer is doctors are, are taught. I shouldn't say taught. They got to give you the truth. So the numbers, lay out the numbers for you. And I know you got this like I did. What are my survival numbers, right? What, with my brand of cancer, how long do I have? That's the first thing you ask. So then you give them the numbers and then they lay out this chart in front of you. And part of you is like, all right, thanks for being honest. The other part of you is like, how dare you think how long I'm going to go? You, you know, you, you get pissed. You get pissed. That's I got pissed. I was pissed off that I had cancer. Well, you know, they have actuarial tables, just like insurance people. They have actuarial tables. When you have a certain type that fits into this category, they make their best guess as to how long you're going to live. And yes, that's yes. what it is. Right? So, so for me, all right. So I got my my diagnosis. Had the surgery. It was a successful surgery. They got it. Um, I'm stage three because it actually uh, it escaped the prostate and it got into the bloodstream. So that makes me stage three. Now, they haven't discovered it anywhere else yet, but my risk of reoccurrence, according to these charts, is 72%. That's my risk of reoccurrence within the next 10 years, that 72% chance likelihood it will return. So that number is, you know, that's seared into my brain. Sure. 72%. You fight against it every day. 72%. 72%. What, what can I do to eliminate that? What can I do to knock that down? What can I do that, to make that 7%? 72%. Because of the, the aggressiveness of my cancer. I don't know what's around the corner for me. Yeah, what's your long-term prognosis? What are they, how long will this drug last? Well, they don't, they don't know. Um, it's um, average effectiveness is about 19 months. Well, that's where I am about now. And I feel great. So we're just going to continue having me take it. But at some point, the Tegriso is not going to be effective, they believe. And then what? We don't know. Uh, we don't know what the next form of treatment will be. What do you mean you don't know? What do you mean? They, they don't know or you don't know? It, it depends on if it starts coming back and how it starts coming back. For instance, I had a couple of rogue lymph nodes pop up about uh, five months ago, and I needed to get radiation for them for three weeks. And it killed those two rogue lymph nodes. But you just don't know what's around the corner with what I have. Um, so it might be um, immunotherapy. It might be chemotherapy. There might be another pill on the market that I can take. I got very fortunate. I'm not going through chemo, like liquid chemo, with the portal in your in your body, and you have to go in, you know, four or five times a week, uh, every three weeks. I'm taking a pill every day, a chemotherapy pill, so the side effects are minimal. And all I can do is hope that uh, the research and the money being thrown at my particular type of cancer, lung cancer, uh, will come up with another chemotherapy pill, hmm. something that I'll be able to take for another two, three, four years that will manage it, that will control it, that will shrink it. That's all I can hope for. Um, I, I, will, I will say this. I was asked to speak to other lung cancer survivors, and everybody wore a name tag, their name and how long they have survived hmm. since their initial diagnosis. And the encouraging thing was, 
here I am up there and I had only had it for about a year, year and a half. Mm -hmm. And I see people in the audience with name tags that said, Anne, 12 years, Richard, 10 years. So, and these people all looked healthy and felt healthy because what they're doing in the medical field right now and what they're doing at Anschutz, especially with all their breakthrough stuff, um, they're figuring out ways to, to control this to the point where you can have a great quality of life. And, and right now I have a great quality of life and I'm, I'm very fortunate. But again, I'm always wondering what's around the corner. Anytime something goes awry, anytime I feel sick, whatever sickness that comes up, I think it's cancer. Absolutely. It could be anything. It could be, it could be diarrhea. Oh, it's cancer. It could be foot fungus. Well, that's gotta be cancer. I'm the same way. Yeah. And, and that doesn't go away. That doesn't go away. You just have Never. to, you have to work through that and deal with that. Yeah. Until, until they come up with that Star Trek wand, yeah. you know, that they, that they just wave over your body and all the bad stuff goes away. Uh, that's the way I'm going to be thinking. People may not know our history. So when I was a kid, and how many years younger am I than you, Les? I'm I'm going to be 51 here. What are I'm you? I'm 64. You're only 64? Yeah, 13 years. <laughs> I'm yeah. saying that it's choking. Only? <laughs> you know, when it comes out of my mouth, I can't I can't believe it because I don't look at myself well, that way. Well, people that don't know, when I was a kid, I was in college, and I always wanted to be a sportscaster. I grew up watching Les and all the local sportscasters in Denver, and that's what I wanted to do. So I got an internship when I was 19 years old as a uh, college sophomore at uh, KCNC Channel 4, and they put me on the weekend shift with Les. And I learned so much from Les. He used to take me around. I remember driving that old Mercedes of yours to uh, Nuggets off-season practices, and you get to be assignments on watching games. And I learned, I learned the practice. I learned everything about what it was like to be a sportscaster by – uh, watching you do your craft and and I'm ever forever indebted and, and and it meant so much to me back then and it really it put me on a straight pace to where I am today. Well, and then, and then you became and then you became when I became the number one guy, you became my weekend. Yes, I did, tanker. I did, and that was years later. So I left and I went to finish school and I, I had other jobs in Austin and Phoenix and then I, I I applied. I kept applying for jobs in Denver. I kept getting denied and finally a job came up and I got a chance to work with Les and it was t- talking about life coming full circle. And, and, and here we are. Um, the, 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 the closest thing we have in common is not the fact that we are former sportscasters at Channel 4. It's that we are both cancer survivors. And uh, one thing I, I want to make clear, because I hear this all the time, Lesson. Tell me if you agree or disagree. I, I hear people say, well, I beat cancer. Oh, you, you, you beat cancer. Yeah, it's, it's remission. I beat it. I never use that term. If a doctor says to me, you will never have cancer again, I'm sorry. Deep in my heart, I... I'm always going to battle cancer. I'm always going to be, and I respect it enough to know that. It's not that I run in fear. I respect it. Curing cancer is a tough concept for me to comprehend. I agree with you. Um, Not only does it never leave my head, but I've come to realize that life is really random. There's no plan in my mind. Life is random. And if somebody like me who never smoked, hardly ever drank, uh, never have done a drug in my life. If I can get cancer like that, uh, it can happen not just once. It can happen twice. It can happen three times. It can happen in other parts of my body. So I will never say I've beaten it. I'll just say maybe I'm overcoming it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's made me even a little bit more unstoppable. Uh, do, you, do you feel unstoppable now? Do you, do you feel like if you can take on the big C, you can take on most anything? You know, um, 
outside of maybe dodging a bullet, an actual live bullet, that's as close as death doorstep that I've ever come. And it feels like, again, you're peering over the cliff of death and you're like, okay, I'm going to die now. And then you ease your way back to real life. And when you're back in real life, you have a different perspective. So yes, from that perspective, I feel completely unstoppable. I feel like life is there to live. It's not there to be scared. It's not there to run. It's there to live. I have a new lease on life in that perspective. That's for sure. Yeah, And my attitude is screw you. Screw you, cancer. I'm going to beat you now. I'm going to live for a long, long time. I'm going to enjoy my wife and my kids and the fruits of my labor and the money I put in the bank. I'm going to enjoy life now. Uh, I've I've stared. I I don't mean to sound too dramatic here, but I have stared uh, death in the face. I've cried a lot about it. Uh, I thought I was a goner. The doctors thought I was a goner. My family thought I was a goner. Um, and and I decided I was going to fight my ass off. I was fortunate that this chemotherapy bill came into existence, but it's allowed me to take a whole new perspective on life. And and that's the way I live now. You know, Lesson, when you asked me about the podcast, I, I said to me, okay, you know, I, I love the name, first of all, because it fits perfectly. But why? What? what What's the motivation for doing this pod in your mind? Well, I like to work and I wanted to keep working. And I also wanted to get the word out uh, what a great campus uh, there is over there in Aurora, Colorado. I was being treated there. You were being treated there for your prostate cancer. I know that, um, that they wanted to brand themselves as one of the preeminent medical facilities in the United States, if not the world. And I, I just thought it would be a good partnership if we got me and you and them together and talk to big name sports people, to talk to entertainers, to talk to business people and, and politicians about what has made them unstoppable. Because Vic, as you and I know, nobody's an overnight success no. and, and nobody's arrow of success goes straight up. Yeah. Everybody goes through adversity. I want to know how all of these people who have had all this great success in all of these fields, I want to know how they have worked through their own adversity. That's a great point because, you know, for us, it's, it's cancer. It's not just about cancer, all right? When you're unstoppable, there are things that make you unstoppable, things that shape your life. But if you don't face that adversity at some point, you'll never know if you can get through it. And once you do get through it, that confidence you have, that air, I'm not going to call it an air invincibility, but it's an air of that unstoppable nature. It changes your life. And every great athlete, coach, entertainer, whomever you, whoever you talk about, They've gone through it at some point. Yep. And we're going to talk to them. We're going to talk to a lot of them and get their stories. And we're going to talk to the doctors who can help people like you and me fight through these adversities, who can help the athletes and the entertainers and the business people and the politicians, who can help anybody and everybody become unstoppable. Up next, a quick conversation with my doc, Dr. Ross Kamich. He is the director of thoracic oncology at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Hopefully he'll give me some really good advice on how to combat this thing. We Are Unstoppable is sponsored by University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus, a world-class medical destination at the forefront of education, science, medicine, and healthcare, right in the center of the Rocky Mountain region. We're speaking now with Dr. Ross Kamich. He's the Director of Thoracic Oncology at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. 
Hello, Dr. Kamich. How are you? Hi, Les. How are you? I'm, I'm doing fine. Thanks to you, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty darn well. Uh, but for the uninitiated, what does a thoracic oncologist specialize in? Well, so I'm a medical oncologist, and that's the board certification. So you can be certified to look after every kind of cancer. But in certain centers, we choose to subspecialize. So thoracic oncology is lung cancer, mesothelioma, which is a cancer in the lining of the lung, and thymic cancer. But it's mostly lung cancer. All right. I want to talk about COVID-19, if we can, right off the start, which isn't going away anytime soon, by the way. Not such a good virus for people with lung problems, correct? Well, not such a good virus for, for anyone with any kind of underlying health condition. I mean, what we know is you're probably no more likely to catch COVID-19, but if you were to catch it, you would be more likely to run into the, the serious issues in terms of uh, respiratory failure ending up on a ventilator. So me personally, you're talking about because of my lung cancer. Well, so two things. So one is anyone who's had anything going on in their lungs may have diminished lung capacity. So any insult to your lungs, you're going to deal with it less well. And then in terms of other people with cancer, so not, not specifically you, but other people with cancer who've been, for example, through chemotherapy may have lowered immunity. They may have other comorbidities, other diseases. You don't. You're actually a pretty healthy guy. But, you know, could you try not to get it? It would just add to the complications we're already dealing with. Uh, I've read a number of people with asthma have had uh, complications with this. So it doesn't have to be something as drastic as lung cancer. It can be something more benign as well, correct? Yeah. I mean, just imagine that, you know, if you get inflammation in your lungs from COVID-19, how well are you going to cope with it? Well, if you're a super marathon runner, you can probably drop a whole percentage of your lung function and still do great. If you're on the edge of needing oxygen to begin with, it doesn't take much to push you to the level where you need a ventilator. Right, now, earlier in this podcast, my co-host and I, Vic Lombardi and I, were discussing my lung cancer in particular. I, I didn't get too technical, but, but I'm going to get a little technical right here. Um, I was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, and it's called the EGFR mutation. But in a way... I was lucky. A few months before I was diagnosed, a, a treatment of therapy came on the market that was designed specifically for what I have. It's a chemotherapy pill that I take once a day, just one pill, and it's been a game changer for me. Now, I went from feeling like I was dying, literally every day feeling like I was getting weaker and weaker, to leading a, a, a pretty robust, pretty normal life. It's still in me, but it's been shrunk considerably, and it's being managed now. So is that the mantra now in the medical community and in the cancer community? Let's find a cure, but if we can't cure, let's shrink it and manage it, make what used to be a fatal disease into a chronic disease. Yeah, sometimes we've, we've used the expression where you change a death sentence into a life sentence. What we're trying to do before we get to cure for some people is to get to long-term control. So if we used an analogy, if somebody was diagnosed with diabetes, they don't suddenly sell their house and do the bucket list stuff. They just go, well, this is a pain in the butt. We've got to manage it with medication. If they stop the medication, it comes back again. That's what we're doing for some subtypes of lung cancer. We can control them often for years. Sometimes we have to change the therapy a little bit, but the goal is to have you as the headline and the cancer as a footnote in your life. Now, now I had never smoked. You know this. Yeah. I never drank, never to any extent, really. I never liked it. And I exercise religiously. I exercise six to seven days a week. Yet I get lung cancer. How the heck did that happen? I know. Well, so what you're really doing is you're, you're exposing that we know really well one of the causes of lung cancer, which is smoking. 
But to assume that that's the cause of all lung cancer is, is incorrect. And first of all, for those guys who've never smoked and you get diagnosed with lung cancer, everyone says, so, so were you a smoker, Les? And then when you say no, they just think you're lying to them. Or what else were you smoking? But the reality is anything that goes into your lungs, in theory, could cause lung cancer. So, you know, air pollution, we know is a cause. We know that radon gas can be a cause. We know in some parts of the, the world, um, kind of wok-based cooking in an enclosed space can be caused. And we still don't know the cause in some people. Some people say, is this a legacy footprint of some infection you had 10 years ago, and this is just what, you know, you cause some inflammation and it's going to turn up? We just don't know. Well, I, I spent some time trying to figure it out. My parents were both smokers, but they passed away years and years ago. So I haven't ex been exposed to that for a long time. Nobody in my house smokes. Um, I've worked in TV and radio stations my whole life. I used to think it might've been, you know, the, the radio and TV waves, you know, but then everybody in the station would have gotten it at some point. Probably. I stopped trying to figure out why. And now I just deal with working through it. Is that the best attitude to take? I think it is. I think, well, the first thing is you will never find an answer. And so you can drive yourself a little crazy. But it's, it's weird how this is specific to some cancers and not others. Like nobody with breast cancer says, why did I get breast cancer? Yet for lung cancer, because we've identified, as I said, this one external cause that some people have control over, you know, cigarettes are addictive, but they, nevertheless, they essentially started that habit themselves at some point, that people feel they need to ask what was the cause. But you wouldn't do that. I mean, I bet with Vic, you didn't say, why did you get prostate cancer? No, I did not. Good point. So, so what's the best way to live with what I have? I mean, how do I approach this life that has been so endangered? What can make me more unstoppable? Well, do you know, it's funny, because when we first met, you very much had the idea that, you know, the cancer has, was this dominant thing in your life. And, you know, your, your thoughts are going around and around and around about it. But at some point you can't be, you know, you can't be panicked all the time and you have to move on. And you're a kind of guy that says, look, if this isn't about to actively kill me, I'm going to get on with my life. And that's the attitude. You have to say, look, if there's an immediate fire going on, we'll put it out. But at some point you're still you despite having cancer and you will move forward. Well, with your help and the help of the medical community, yeah, I, I have done that. I, I'm, I'm a bit of a defiant SOB, so that helps as well. I kind of say to the cancer, screw you, you ain't stopping me. I, I want to know what keeps your team going? What makes them unstoppable on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, so we, we've assembled a team. Uh, we're, we're, we get on very well. We have a very good sense of humor. Uh, you've encountered it. You know, we, we poke fun at each other. And that allows us to keep moving forward, you know, in what is essentially a very stressful job. And that allows us to say, we will not take second best as standard. We will always try and push the envelope. And if there's a breakthrough, we will find it, we will follow it, or we will lead it. And often we've led the breakthroughs. Well, I, I'm so grateful that you're there. I, I know you've had uh, opportunities to practice at, at, at some of the great cancer institutions in the world. Why did you decide to practice at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus? Well, you know, it's funny because I got offered, so I originally trained in Britain and, and I got the opportunity to come to the United States. I got a, a fancy scholarship that meant they were going to pay my salary for two years. And, and everybody offers you a job if you're a free employee for two years. But I, I turned down a lot of the fancy places on the East Coast because they kind of had the attitude that says, look, we know how to do it. 
you know, we don't need your fancy new ideas. You can just fit in and be a cog in the wheel. Whereas Colorado very much had an idea that said, hey, that sounds like a neat idea. I've never heard that one before, but hey, let's, let's run with it. And so it was much more of a kind of blank slate that allowed me to, to shape uh, what I wanted to turn into one of the, hopefully one of the world's best lung cancer programs. Well, I'm grateful that you're there. Uh, w- one last question. Um, when will the medical community come out with that magic wand? You know, the one you see on Star Trek where they wave it over your body and everything bad in your body disappears. Are, are we close to having that happen? Because I need that right now. I thought the idea was that we already had it, but we were suppressing it so that we could make money from chemotherapy. Yeah, I've heard that quite often. Dr. Kamich, really appreciate your time. It's been very enlightening, and uh, we hope to see you soon. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, that was my doc, and now we get to hear from Vic's doc, Dr. Paul Maroney. He is the program director of urologic oncology at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Pleased to be joined now by a gentleman I've gotten to know all too well over the last, uh, what, 16 months or so, a fine doctor at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus, my doctor, Dr. Paul Maroney. Paul, thank you so much for spending a few minutes. Yeah, you bet, Vic. Uh, Happy to do this, and thanks for offering. When you have somebody enter your office for the first time and you, you, you get a measure of their attitude and the way they look, would you say I was paranoid? Overly paranoid or paranoid just enough about my diagnosis? Yeah, you had the appropriate level of concern, let's call it. Let's confess, uh, you, you've talked a lot about this already. You had a pretty bad cancer, Gleason 9. That's threatening. You know, you're going to start thinking about, you know, am I going to be around in five years, 10 years, 15 years? Am I going to be able to see some of those uh, milestones in my life and in my children's lives and hopefully my grandchildren's lives that I've, I, I've, I really was planning on, on dealing with. And it, it imperils all of those things. So yeah, I, I think you exhibited the, the right amount of concern given the circumstances you were in. So with my situation, uh, I was under 50 at the time. I was 49 and I had the Gleason 9. How, how many cases like that, that aggressive form have you seen? And is it the same practice every time? Is it the same path every time? No, it's not always the same path. To be totally fair, you had more options than just surgery. Uh, We talked about radiation treatments and hormone therapy too. I'm pretty opinionated in in a circumstance like yours that surgery is a better option, but it's mostly not because I think that surgery alone is going to cure you, but I'm trying to keep as many options open for you as I possibly can. I'm trying to figure out the a way that I can keep you around for another 30 to 40 years, uh, given the kind of cancer that we're trying to deal with. You use the word uh, cure a couple times, and, and, and I want to ask you about that. I, I'm almost afraid of that word. That, that word, it's not like I don't want to be cured. Of course I do. But it, it almost scares me because I don't want to over, get overly excited or overly confident. And when I hear, well, I've been cured of cancer, you know what I'm saying? I don't want to go down that path. Do you hear that often? Yeah, you never get a get a, get to a hundred percent, but there are circumstances where I can say, yeah, if you get say three years and your PSA is still undetectable after your surgery, the chance of you dying within the next twelve years after that is minuscule, a couple percent. Right, so sometimes that's comforting to patients for us to tell them. You know, beyond that, it's you know, I'm I don't know, I'm pretty imaginative, so I've seen. And whenever you see strange things, you, they, they stick in your mind, but you see guys that they're, they're fine for eight or 10 years, and then the PSA starts to go up again. So, you know, how do you explain that? How do, you know, what, what do you say to that guy that still may have a long, 
time left. The reality is, is we still got great treatments. I'd rather be, uh, you know, when we're talking about 10 years from now, that's 2030, we're going to have a whole bunch of extra treatments that we don't have right now that are going to do a better job of helping us, uh, let's call it manage prostate cancer. Uh, you know, and, and I, I fully expect that at some point in my life, I'm going to look back and say, geez, I didn't need to remove those prostates in 2020 because of the medical advances and the technology that we have, you know, who knows? I'm hoping at some point we are just given a, we diagnose a guy with prostate cancer. We do some fancy testing to it. We've got a personalized pill that we give him, then that's all he needs to take for the rest of his life. And he knows he's going to live a normal lifespan with hopefully minimal side effects. You know what I've tried to do uh, to raise awareness? I started uh, a podcast. I started a webcast. We're trying to get people out there, trying to get men to understand that it's okay to talk about this. But as a doctor and people in your business, what, what have you done and what do you recommend to try to build that similar awareness that, hey, you turn 50 or you're around 50, you got to take this seriously? Yeah, it's mostly trying to reach out to primary care doctors. Um, I really appreciate the work that you've done with your podcast. I, I think that that's great. You know, it's it's hard to get to those guys. You know, most men are still feeling pretty good at that age. Who knows how frequently they're going to see their doctor. Uh, some doctors don't believe in, in screening for prostate cancer. Or that that kind of depends on the on the year uh, and, and what the recommendations are. But um, you know, some, some doctors don't, don't do it at all. Others doctors, I think do it appropriately. Maybe some doctors do it too much, but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to, hard to reach men and, and let them know how important this is to start thinking about this. If not in the late forties, certainly in the fifties, I mean, you're an example of a guy who, who according to our current guidelines wouldn't have even been, been screened. Yeah. Well, I had no symptoms. And uh, even up until surgery, I had no symptoms. I had no knowledge. I had no idea. I'll never forget when I first saw you and you, you checked me out and, you know, you, you even told me that. I said, it doesn't look like you're the kind of guy that would carry. But what can those kind of guys, because there are plenty of them out there who don't carry symptoms. Is there anything they can do on their own accord? Well, it's really the the PSA testing is going to be the key thing. Um, you know, I, I think if men are, are frightened of the examination, they can always refuse that. I mean, they're going to get maybe 90% of the bang for the buck out of screening just from the blood test alone. Some might argue that cancer is, is unstoppable, but you've proven, uh, medicine has proven it. indeed it's not. Does it matter, doctor, the, the patient and the way the patient attacks this, the, the type of makeup he or she shows in attacking cancer, that unstoppable quality, is that important to recovery? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I've, I've seen people just be, become uh, really uh, paralyzed with, uh, with depression and, and anxiety over, uh, over their cancer diagnoses and having a good attitude about, about your treatment, trying to stay positive through it, I, I think is, or is definitely the, the best way to uh, try to manage the psychology around this. You know, I, I really don't, think in a lot of cases we we do quite the best job of of helping patients manage some of those things i think we do see men especially that come in and they're fairly stoic when they come in but they're they're probably a lot more emotional and, and we're not we're, we're not maybe reading those guys properly when they're when they're in the clinic but we when they go home they're really affected by by this in ways that we might be able to otherwise alter if we were doing a better job of helping manage that the entire world has come to a stop with the coronavirus. First of all, I want to ask, 
everything good on your end? Everything safe? Has it been a, a tough few weeks for you? No, you know, for, for us as, as cancer surgeons, um, you know, the hard part is, is, is telling patients that, that we're already had cancer, cancer surgery scheduled that they're going to, going to have to wait. Um, you know, the, I, I do say that, you know, this is an incredible medical phenomenon. Uh, the people that are really dealing with this and that deserve all of our praise and attention are the, the nurses and the intensive care units the critical care doctors that are helping take care of them, which are both surgeons and anesthesiologists and pulmonologists and internal medicine doctors, the doctor, the hospitalists that are helping manage these patients on the floor. Those those are the ones that, that you read the stories about where they, they get home and they're, um, you know, they're staying away from their families. They're, you know, cloistering themselves and away you know, those, those are the doctors that really deserve a lot of, a lot of credit and, and the, the nurses and the medical assistants and the staff members that are helping on those units um, are the real heroes here. And, the, and, the med- and let's be fair, our, our medical residents, they're, they're the ones that are on the front lines too. Man, I, I couldn't fathom taking that call because, you know, obviously you need those hospital beds for, for what's at stake right now. But getting a call saying you're going to have to wait another three or four months to attack your own cancer that 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 must be hard. It must be hard on the patients. It must be hard on the doctors to make that call. Yeah, you know it's it's really hard to um, you know help them keep in perspective. Um, you know we try to reassure them to the extent we can that this is not really harmful for their long term outcomes, but it's still not a not a comforting conversation to have. But we do the do the best job we can. Well, my friend, it's been, uh, let's see here, a year and two months, just about since my surgery. I'm still at that undetectable level. So uh, whatever you did, it seems to be working. And I I thank you every day for it. I appreciate your time. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Heck, we got an appointment here in about a couple months, don't we? Yeah, I'm pretty sure we do. And, and hey, Vic, you're, uh, you're very welcome. But I really want to thank you for all the things that you've done for men's health. I think the podcasts that you've done for prostate cancer specifically, and then this new podcast, uh, Unstoppable, you're, you're really a, a model uh, of unstoppability here. Thanks for continuing to go. I know this is, this is hard. I, you know, this, this time without sports um, is, is just, you know, crushing a lot of us. And, and I miss it, not just the professional sports, but the, but the youth sports too. And, and I hope we can just get back to, you know, cheering on those Broncos and, and uh, the Rockies and the Avs and the Nuggets and, you know, all those teams that we, we love to watch play. Here, here, my friend. Thank you very much, Paul. All right. You betcha. Thanks for listening to We Are Unstoppable, sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. You want more Unstoppable stories? Subscribe to our podcast wherever you find and listen to podcasts. You can even ask your smart speaker to play We Are Unstoppable podcasts. And you can visit us at our website, unstoppablepodcasts.com, for more episodes and ways to subscribe. That's unstoppablepodcasts.com. Subscribe today.